Welcome back to the Indie, the podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm your host, Molly McEnany, and this week I'm here with Marco DeSantis, music professional and member of the band's Sugar Cult and Bad Astronaut, who wrote this week's story on the Foo Fighter from Santa Barbara, Chris Shiflett, who was recently inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on October 30th, along with the rest of the band, of course. Thank you both so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thanks, Molly. Yeah, thanks for having us. I like, I just like hearing you refer to Marco as a music professional. That makes me very happy. <laughs> Did you say that a little louder so I can yeah. talk to my mom later yeah. on? Yeah, yeah. Music professionals in the room over here. Yes, yes. Well, I know you two have known each other for a long time, but I guess for me, let's start right from the beginning. Chris, yeah. you grew up on Castillo Street, right in the heart of Santa Barbara. What relationship did you form with music growing up? Were you automatically drawn to rock and the guitar? Did that take some time? No, it was I was kind of like born into it, you know, because I had older brothers and my older brothers were a few, you know, like five and seven years older than me. So like by the time I was born, they already had great record collections and and they played they both played guitar and bass and and music. You know, it was like a different time. Like it just seemed like everybody was into rock and roll and like half of everybody was in a band. You know, it seemed like when when we were kids coming up and there were a lot of bands in uh, in Santa Barbara and a really good fertile music scene and yeah it was just kind of all around because we didn't have cell phones and video games then yeah i was just gonna say like it was our form of social media it was just our, our form of social networking you know like the only way like it was just what you did it wasn't even about whether you were good at it or not some of us were good at it some of us were okay at it some of us were really good at it but it was just kind of like what you did you know kind of like going to the beach or something you live there's if there's waves you go to the beach if there's no waves you go to your friend's house and listen to music or grab a guitar and have them teach you how to play something you know it's it's a funny thing you know for all the bands that marco and i were both in um through those years there are probably five times as many bands that never actually existed but just were discussed in name only you know oh, totally. we'll get we'll get this crew of people and we'll be called vatos from hell or what you know like, like some, i mean that, that actually was a real band for a minute but right. like but but you know what i mean like there were so many of those kind of bands in high school like, yeah. right you know <laughs> yeah well, I mean, growing up on the West Coast, there was the New Wave 1980 Festival, which solely featured punk bands. Nardcore was on the rise in the suburbs of Oxnard. Yeah, right next door to Santa Barbara. I mean, how much of did this booming punk environment really affect both of your music educations? I mean, do you think your your style, specifically Chris as a guitar player, really blossomed at this time? I mean, I, I grew up listening to like hard rock and heavy metal music and kind of found punk rock later. But like, um, but the Nardcore thing, it is funny, like, the first recording that I ever was on that was released was through Mystic Records, you know, and that and I am kind of proud of that, you know, was when I was in a band called Rat Pack when I was in high school. And, you know, all that stuff was certainly an influence. You know, me and Marco kind of like found that stuff, that sort of initial wave of Santa Barbara punk rock had kind of come and gone by the time we were of age, you know, and but it, but the residue was there for sure. And RKL definitely loomed large in everybody's minds and, and, and were a huge musical influence, I think, on everything. I think I think one of the benefits of us kind of, you know, coming up maybe like one generation after that initial punk rock thing was that we were able to sort of enjoy the mythology of it a little bit like you sort of heard about it and you heard about these people and you walked by them on the street and you'd wonder about a mask and so it was kind of mythologized that spoke to 
our generation who, you know, when we had grown up initially like seeing bands on MTV and reading about bands in magazines and going to big concerts at the Arlington or down in LA at the Forum and music seemed like there was like this kind of fourth wall between a fan and a professional band. But then when you heard about these bands in our own scene, in our own town, it was kind of like, well, okay, that's cool. But then when you actually go to the shows, you realize like, oh my God, these are like just like kids a couple years older than me. And their gear is just as crappy as my gear. And their <laughs> vans are just as beat up as my vans. And you just started to like, it, it kind of took the cape off the superhero. It made it seem like something you could attain, you know? Well, and you know, there was, there was a lot of it around too. Like, I think when we got to that age, when we started playing gigs you know our all of our first gigs were like at keg parties and stuff so keg parties around santa barbara and a lot of keg parties in iv and then the red barn sure. and uh and the park out in iv and all that stuff and and it wasn't just punk rock it was like you know i think because of ucsb you know you had a, just all that like the the you know the early version of like college rock indie rock whatever you want to call it you know there was a lot of that influence around and that wasn't even really like None of that stuff was really what I was really interested in, but you just got it because it was what was there. Like we were like wanted to be little glam rockers, but there was no scene for that where we were. So the only, if you were going to go see a live band, it was going to be thrash metal. It was going to be punk rock. It was going to be at a keg party. It was going to be at the Red Barn. It was going to be something like that. That was, that was the stuff that was accessible. You know, let's be real. We were teenagers. And when you're a teenager, you can't go to State Street and like get into a bar. Right. So our only way to like, you know, meet girls and drink beers with our friends was to go to like keg party shows in IV. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty much, that was kind of the drill. We just go, you go to, IV, I mean, I don't know what IV's like today, but when we were growing up, that was pretty much the drill. It was kind of like anything goes, you just had to keep your cup held upside down. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we'd like that's go there after school and like ask some college student, Hey dude, could you move your cars out of your driveway? And just like, if we pay for a keg, could we play a show here this weekend? And they would just like ask their roommate real quick and be like, yeah, whatever, it's cool. You know, and, that, and you wrote the address down and made flyers. You know, There's so many of those kind of shows that were in carports in Isla Vista, oh, totally. you know, like, that, like a million of them. And the Red Barn, I can't stress enough, Chris mentioned the Red Barn. If you go out to IV, you can find it. It's out there still. It's surrounded by a bunch of development, but it's still just this dumpy little like red barn. It looks like a storage shed, but literally Green Day played there on their way up. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, no effects play there a million times on their way up. All of our bands, it was where I played my first show ever, opening for Chris's band, who was opening for Rat Pack. So Rat Pack, Lost Kittens, Illiterate. You oh, know, really? October. Yeah, yeah, it was our first show ever. That must have been that summer, 1987, because I remember that summer we played the Red Barn like a million yeah, times. It was. I think I think I have photos from that gig. Did, was it, did I do double duty at that? Was I in Rat Pack and Lost Kittens at that point? I don't think you were in, I think that was, I don't think you were in Rat Pack at that point. I think that was still just, that was Lost Kittens version uh, with, with Jeff Kirkmeyer and Misha Feldman. Uh, and okay. So that was, and then of course, Illiterate was me and Dave Hanasek, KJE, yeah. and our friends Banks, Allback, and uh, Derek Plort, who went on to be in a band called Lagwagon. Yeah, it's really incestuous, small little pond, Santa Barbara. We all shared bass amps and Marco and Marco and Dave Hanasek's houses were kind of like home base for the weekend because they were like I grew up downtown, so we would just go crash out at their houses pretty much all weekend long and satellite out to Isla Vista. That's right. That's right. Go to go to Keggers and go to Campus Point during the day. <laughs> and, like you know, totally. yeah. And then I read that we just like that was like a, a point of pride in high school. Like, yeah, going home Sunday, haven't taken a shower since Friday morning when I left home. Woo. Yeah. 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 
and we had all our moms thinking, you know, going, you know, oh, you know, he's just going over to David's house. You know, oh, he's just going. Yeah. Oh, you're just going over to Mark's and, house. And Dave's Hannah's house had a pool, so that was key. Well, that, that was your cool. shower for the weekend. Oh, for sure. Well, there you for go. Sure. There you go. And we had so much fun. It was it was a lot of fun. And honestly, I'm I I feel like we're lucky we didn't have Fortnite and Instagram and all and Netflix. We didn't. We're lucky we didn't have all these options. So we were just forced to be creative because none of the stuff was organized. It wasn't like our parents signed us up for like, you know, rock camp or something like that. It was just a bunch of kids making it happen after school because we were bored, you know? Yeah, we're, we're, we are treading dangerously close to like angry grandpa territory right now. When I was a oh, kid, yeah. it was better. It was better. But <laughs> <laughs> I would trudge through the snow without shoes on. Yeah, no, I, you kids you. don't know a damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I so, always think about how uh, much that is affecting music today, too. And I always imagine, oh, it must have been so great in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s when music was raw and, you know, local, which is what I well, always you know, dream to be the best. I, but... I, always call it the, I always call it the rose-tinted rearview mirror. You know, in retrospect, it all looks really romantic and, and I, you know, idyllic. But in, in, in its day, you were like, okay, uh, I got to drive, like, I got to literally go on vacation in order to find some cool shoes. Like, now you can just order things on app. It's so much more convenient today. I always know? just assume, too, like, looking back, that it was there was some version of that happening, like, in every town, yeah. everywhere, True. you know? True. But our town was just better. That's the difference. <laughs> well, going back to earlier, with every era, there's always going to be some transformation with today's music. It's the accessibility of platforms, of course. But specifically in Isla Vista, you know, it's this one square mile of all students. You could basically go and knock on anyone's door and they'd let you in and, and mm. play a show in their backyard or in their driveway or their carport. And the garage and DIY scene in Isla Vista is very much alive today. But leading into my next question, was Santa Barbara then this quintessential place to start a music career? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you know, we can't stress it enough that we definitely weren't thinking about it in terms of a career. It's, it's funny. Like I, you know, I, I, we were both so like determined to move to LA and like go make it and do that and move to the, you know, Hollywood and do that thing, which we did. And then immediately after we left, like all these bands started getting record deals out of Santa Barbara. <laughs> like what the, what happened? You know, and we were, I thought we had to move to LA to do that. And then it's like summer camp and Dishwalla and ugly kid Joe and Toad to what's like all of a sudden it's like Santa, you remember like after grunge, there was this phase where there was just this constant search for the next Seattle. And for like 20 minutes, Santa Barbara was like the next Seattle, you know what I mean? But we were gone by then. Summer yeah. camps, not Stegosaurus. Like there was just so many bands and they all got record deals. Silver Jet, yeah. you know, which is our family, but indirectly from Santa Barbara, but like, just unbelievable. Nerf herder, of yeah. course. Yeah. I look back at how funny that time was like, I was in a bunch of bands. I never got a record deal. Like how, how the did that happen, <laughs> man? Like that was like the easiest time to get a record deal in like recording history was like the nineties, you know, it was like the booming, oh. booming music industry. And I never got a record deal. We were simultaneously the early adopters and the late bloomers. We were, you know, we were some of the first, one of the right, lost kids right. in our scene of friends that we were like, one of the first bands was actually like, doing some things. Eventually we started getting, you know, going from the driveway shows and the red barn to like downtown Santa Barbara and getting shows where we get to be like the opening band for touring bands that would come through. And then we started actually getting shows in LA. So we thought like as teenagers, we were like, Hey, we might be like the, you know, the rock and roll teenage story. Who knows this might happen. 
and then it kind of fell apart. Everybody else went had their career, and then when they were all done, Sugar Cult finally made it, and Chris finally got the Foo Fighters gig. So we like we were first and last, you know. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, and all that time just spent around the punk rock scene in your early years definitely helped make it happen in the end. But before we even get into Foo Fighters territory, tell me a bit about the first show you ever played yeah. in Santa Barbara. The first show I ever played or the first time I ever played in front of a crowd was my ninth grade talent show. And I was I was going to Santa Barbara High School and my buddy Grant Roden came up to me one day and was like, hey, we should put a band together for the for the talent show. So it was me and him and his brother, BJ, and my friend Jeff Kirkmeyer playing drums and our friend Todd Straka, who was I don't remember how old. he was probably 18 or something, but he was like the one adult, you know, like the, the one guy that was out of high school. And so we learned a couple of Kiss songs and we played our ninth grade talent show. And it was it was a total mess, but it was super fun. And I mean, I was like hooked right away. I just it was like the best feeling, you know, to play to an auditorium full of people. And then uh, the next school year was the first like I kind of like I think of like my first proper gig I was in this band for a minute with some friends called Legion of Doom and we played at this pool hall downtown we were the opener and then it was Rat Pack No Effects and Excel but that was like the first time I played like you know we probably played for 20 minutes or something but it felt like we would headline the forum or something you know well dude me and all of our friends from that you know from our little gang of friends we all went to that show because we couldn't believe like it was the first time one of our friends was actually playing. It wasn't our first concert we'd ever been to. It was the first time it was an actual concert you had to buy a ticket to that had one of our friends playing on it. And so it was like to see Chris up there and we knew Jeff too and Mark from the singer of the band. And we were just like, oh my God, like that was like the biggest like epiphany ever where you're like, I can't believe this is even possible for kids to do. So it yeah. was a big show. And by the way, fun fact for people listening to this, who live in Santa Barbara, the Golden Eagle Pool Hall was where he was, he's, the pool hall he's talking about, the venue, is now Urban Outfitters on State Street. So when you're in Urban Outfitters. Of course it is. They used to have of course it there. is. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, man. Going back to, it's really not the <laughs> yeah. same. It used to be it's, the yeah. Well, that, that part's definitely not the same. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you a funny detail from that story. So um, uh, Dave Casillas from Rat Pack, who was the guitar player at the time, um, I don't know if he just didn't bring a guitar or what, but he was like, hey, can I use your guitar for for our set? And I was like, sure. You know, I was like 15. There you go. I remember he broke all the strings and <laughs> jumped up and like crashed into one of Sean Murphy's cymbals and like put a big old ding in my in my Les Paul that I'd like just gotten to oh. for like my 15th birthday. Oh, yeah. Man. And so he put like the first little he put the first wear and tear on it. And I remember being like, you know, and not like because he was being mean or you know dave was my friend of it you know i didn't really know him then yeah. but like he's a total sweetheart <laughs> of a guy but um but i remember like uh ryan stevens found out about it maybe by way of renee Lynn or something you know at the time and i remember ryan coming up to me i'm like we're gonna get him if he doesn't fix oh, your guitar man. and it was just broken strings you know what i mean it was like they cost like four bucks or something at jensen's you know what i mean it was like <laughs> no it's fine it's fine don't do it don't kill him so I know there was a lot in between, but I want to fast forward a little bit just because I'm really dying to hear about when you auditioned for the Foo Fighters, Chris. So it's 1999. What were you thinking yeah. when you walked in? I mean, were you nervous? Were you excited? Well, there was a lot of years between, you know, those two points. And so I had, I had moved to L.A. and lived down there and played around for, you know, five years or so and then moved up to San Francisco and joined this band called No Use for a Name and was in, in that band for you know nearly five years or so. And I was still in the band. So when I went to go audition for the Foo Fighters, I was kind of like sneaking off to go 
you know, try to get in the foos. And um, yeah, I mean, I was like so nervous, but um, just, I just wanted it so bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, and, and walking into that room was 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 really scary. But but then immediately, I, I remember the first thing out of Dave's mouth is he was like, "Oh my God, that last guy wouldn't leave. You know, you saved us." And I just kind of immediately went like, "Okay, you know, this is okay. This is this off to a good start." You know, and and we really just you know it was like maybe an hour or something. We played a few songs and and it seemed to go well. And you know, you just never know. It's like who else is auditioning and what are they looking for and and who knows. So it worked out that when I joined No Use for a Name, it was a very similar situation where I had to learn a bunch of songs that I that, it, real fast and jump in a van with a bunch of guys I didn't know, you know, and which and then joining Foo Fighters was like the macro version of that, you know, I was learning 25 songs or whatever and, and go jump in a bus with a guys, a bunch of guys I didn't know and just kind of figure it out on the fly. So in a way, No Use for Name was kind of like boot camp for you, huh? It was kind of like, it's kind of gave you the muscle, the training you needed, you didn't know you needed for the next thing, the next chapter of life. Absolutely. And both of those experiences really like, I mean, you can apply this to anything in life, but like for musicians in particular who tend to be extremely underprepared and kind of lazy and like, you know, oh yeah, I, I learned the songs. I listened to them on the, on the way to the audition or whatever, that kind of thing. Like, I think that was the biggest thing I learned is like, you cannot be overly prepared you know for those moments like i because right. i had just sat in my room once i found out i was going to get the foo fighter audition i just did nothing but play foo fighter songs for a week you know yeah it's like you know you gotta you're swinging with five bats before you go up to bat so that it feels easy when you yeah. have one bat in your hand but i mean i imagine the difference yeah. i never thought about this before but like when you go into jam with no use you know relative to this the level of success you had attained before them just as a local band on a local level it was probably like, whoa, I'm joining like a real made punk band that has a record deal on records right now. But, you know, you maybe oh, yeah. saw a picture of them or yeah. maybe had met them socially. With Foo Fighters, it's a different story because you're like, I mean, there's no one in our generation who wasn't aware of Nirvana. Sure. And so you're walking in a room where like, oh, my God, it's that guy, you know, it's that guy from Nirvana. <laughs> you know, and also at that point, that guy from the Foo Fighters, because they were already a famous band. Right? Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's funny when I look back at like and I remember this. I have like telling myself to stop doing this. But I remember when I first joined the man for like a long time, I would just kind of like watch Dave, you know, when we were playing shows, I just feel like watching him <laughs> like a fan, you know what I mean? And I was like, stop doing that. Like you're just like yeah, gazing right. at him, you know, like, awesome, cause I, yeah. cause, cause I was a fan first. I was a fan for a long time, you know, I mean, I've, I've like seen old footage of us and I'm just like staring at Dave, like, stop doing that, man. You're gonna freak him out. You're gonna weird him out. <laughs> But yeah, you know, I mean, and that goes way back because like going back to Santa Barbara stuff, like, you know, when 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 I was in Rat Pack, we actually opened for Dave's band Scream, you know, for the band that he was in before Nirvana. And even back then, there was like a buzz on Dave. You know, I remember that show and everybody, you know, the guys in my band going like, gotta watch the drummer, you gotta watch the drummers, you know. And so he just had that thing. I mean, he's a super talented guy. And nowadays, you know, great front man and guitar player and all that stuff. But he just had a buzz on him from from early on. So it's sort of like, you know, getting over that, like, whoa, I'm freaked out to be in the room with these guys that I've been watching their videos on MTV for years. You know, you just kind of have to, like, file that, put that into some other part of your brain and get on with it. Yeah, you can't let that get inside your head, you know? Yeah. I was just thinking, Molly, you, you mentioned that you did some stuff with KCSB. When you yeah, were, yeah, at a few yeah. radio shows. So I remember that was, that's that's actually something that I don't think gets enough credit when we're talking about like our experience of growing up in Santa Barbara is we really didn't have a radio station in Santa Barbara. When we were young, KJE wasn't even there yet. You know, what about so K-Tide, K -Tide, bro? 40 minute free ride. 
yeah, we, we had K-10, the 40 minute free ride. But, but the one thing we did have that to me was like a, a portal to so much cool underground music was KCSB because, you know, it's oh, yeah, the station definitely. at UCSB. And I, you know, that's why I learned about Jawbreakers, how I learned about like Sugar, how I learned about so many things that ended up being like very, you know, fundamental things in my kind of musical awakening in the 90s. But like, I, I remember bands that would come to town would sometimes do like performances at KCSB. And I have actually the KCSB magazine where Scream did a, a, a show at Dave Grohl's old band Scream, this band from before Nirvana that Chris was just talking about. They did a show on the air at KCSB and on the KCSB magazine, which band member is on there? The drummer, which was Dave Grohl. So you see a big picture of Dave Grohl. Well, in what Chris just said, like there was a buzz on him from back then. That just says something right there. You, you would think you'd put the lead singer on the cover or the singer and the guitar player, or maybe like the whole band, but the drummer. And it just, you know, so I think KCSB is probably the reason Dave Grohl is a star. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it always That's goes right. back to radio. It all goes back to that. <laughs> what better than community powered radio too, especially for Santa Barbara. But I think that's really interesting that even at this time, someone like Dave Grohl, who was a drummer, was already a front man in a way. But also cool that another Foo Fighter member has that tie to Santa Barbara. I mean, playing at KCSB Courtyards, interacting with the community. That's that's really what it's all about. And of course, KCSB is always helping bands grow by spinning them on the radio. So now to get a little bit more technical, you were talking a bit earlier about your Gibson Les Paul Black Beauty, which is now in the Hall of Fame, yes, which is yeah. amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. But when you first booked the gig, you're with the Foo Fighters. What other guitars did you bring on tour with you? It's a, it was a funny thing because when I got the gig at like the first rehearsal that we did, Dave said to me, asked me, he goes like, well, how many guitars do you have? And I was like, well, I've got this one and I got another one, but the other one, the headstock's broke. So I really just have this one. And he just kind of chuckled and he was like, oh, we, we got to get you some more guitars. And I was like, oh, cool. Great. And then the next morning before the rehearsal that day, he took me over to uh, Voltage Music or Voltage Guitars or whatever it was over. We were down in L.A., you know, and, and took me over to a couple of guitar stores. And I mean, that was like such a magic moment, like to walk into these guitar stores that we'd been chased out of like our whole lives with like get whatever you want, you know, like that, like I had never experienced that in my life. You know, I'm, that was a real, like, like, I just felt like I'm on top of the world, baby. I made it. <laughs> Dave Grohl was buying me a guitar. So I bought a, a, a white Les Paul that I still play all the time and, and a, um, and a white, uh, Gibson Explorer. Is that that, that? is that that white Les Paul with the Ace Frehley sticker on it? Or do you, oh, yeah, oh. yeah, yeah, exactly. It didn't have the Ace Frehley sticker on it then, but right. I stuck it on there not too long after. That's awesome. So Gibsons must kind of have your heart then. Well, no, I ironically, I mean, I grew up playing that Les Paul and, and mostly played Gibsons for the early part of um, playing in bands and stuff. But um, but I really have gotten into Fenders in recent years um, and and actually have a Fender signature model with my name on it so we can't for the sake of not ruffling feathers over at fender we can't say that gibson's got oh, my heart that's you know true. What I mean? they can share <laughs> they can share they both do <laughs> fender is a fine musical instrument i tell you yeah dude yeah. actually i didn't even talk about that in the story but like you know give us like the just a, a quick rundown of the the chris shiflet model fender yeah, yeah yeah okay so when i when i really started digging in like you know i'd listened to country music for years and americana and all that stuff but when i when I really first started trying to play it, you know, I think was probably the first time I ever bought a, a Telecaster. And a Telecaster for guitar players, no, it's a single coil pickup. It's a 
different sound, you know. I mean, it's great for for hard rock too, but you know, Foo Fighters really like a humbucker band. So I I put together a couple just parts guitars that were that were like Telecasters but with humbuckers, and my old rep at Fender, who I mean, this is how I met him. He just called me up one day and he was like, "Hey, I saw you made those parts guitars. What if we just made you a Fender of that?" And we just did like a Chris Shiflett model and just to your specs. And so we did that. We um, did went, did a little back and forth with like, they made a couple earlier versions of it and we, and we kind of dialed it in. And, and it was like, my signature model is like, it's a Telecaster geared to play heavy rock music. Like I play in the Foo Fighters is basically what it is. Rosewood neck, if humbucker pickups, you know, it's, it's a. Uh, it's a, uh, it's not your traditional Telecaster, but just in time for holiday shopping, um, who's offering you a one-time 10% off discount? That's right. It's, Marco, it's in a, just put in the, in the coupon code. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Slash the indie to 15% <laughs> off. Yeah. 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 So that's now going right. back to you're on the road, you're in the Foo Fighters, you made it. When did you start kind of developing a personality? as a songwriter what are some of your favorite songs that you've written it's funny I, I really didn't even make much of an attempt i mean there there are some really bad i've thought about this a lot actually because I, I tried like in high school when when me and mark were playing together and even a little before that to tried writing a couple early songs and i i remember one time at practice i had written some song i i was probably like 15 years old it's funny i, I really didn't even make much of an attempt i mean there there are some really bad i've thought about this a lot actually because I, I tried like in high school when when me and mark were playing together and even a little before that to tried writing a couple early songs and i i remember one time at practice i had written some song i i was probably like 15 years old and it was just god awful like bad like you know rock type lyrics of that era and i remember the other guitar player in the band grant roden found my lyrics in my in my in my guitar case and picked them up and he goes what is this and he starts reading them laughing and it was like "Ooh, baby i'm gonna get you or you know that i didn't know anything about you know but i was trying to write one of those kind of songs and i and i was like so mortified that i think that like <laughs> killed any desire to be a songwriter for for a really long time so it wasn't oh, really like... until like later in when i was like the towards the end of being in no use for name that i really <laughs> started to kind of sit down and try to woodshed some ideas and it was like a few years after that before i ever played anything like for even my friends or publicly or anything and it, it wasn't until I, I had a band called jackson united that i really sat down and like you know and recorded a bunch of my own songs and tried to like sing them and, and do all that stuff um so I, I was kind of a late bloomer in in that regard but it, you know it's one of those things that just the more you do the more you enjoy and 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 hopefully you know you, you i don't know if it's like i wouldn't say like necessarily the better you get but the more comfortable you become in your own voice and like your writing voice and and try to because then i went through this phase too where i was like I remember I was trying to kind of intentionally write country, you know, or like old school country and trying to write songs that sounded like Buck Owens. And I realized like, God, this just sucks. You know, what am I doing? Like, why can't I do this? These songs are like three chords. Like, why can't I write one that I want to play for anybody else? And I, it took me a while and I kind of realized like I was trying to write in like their language instead of writing in my language, the way I speak, the way I talk. I remember when I interviewed Jason Isbell, he said something that always stuck with me. He said, like, do you, you want your lyrics to be like conversational? You know, I read a Brad Paisley quote where he said, anytime he's struggling on a lyric, it's he realizes it's because 
it's not something he would actually say. Mm. And so if you kind of like apply that to your, use that as like your guiding light, you know, with, with, uh, with lyrics in particular, you know, I think that, that you, it's just, you know, it takes some time and then you kind of figure out your own voice with it. And what are some things that you've written that feel like your own voice? Oh God. Um, <laughs> I always write it. You know, it's funny. I always wind up writing about Santa Barbara. I got like endless songs about Santa Barbara. I, I really liked, uh, I really, I think my favorite record you made so far is your last solo record that is called Hard, Hard Lessons or Hardest Lessons. Oh yeah. 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 That, that's a great record, man. And I, I, the reason I love that record is because, well, Chris, you know, he started sort of like taking interest in country because, you know, he's getting his rock and roll nutrients in his, in the Foo Fighters and his solo records were leaning more country. But I feel like that last record you made was, was kind of like almost like those two sides of you kind of like meeting up and having combo platter, know, having, a, having coffee together, you know? Yeah. 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 Oh. Well, you know, it's, it's, I've actually been this year, I've been chipping away at making a new record with, um, with, uh, Jaron from Cadillac three producing. And I think it leans even more into that. Like, you know, it's, it's, there's some stuff is like super country and some stuff is like, I don't know, it's just rock and roll or, alt rock or somewhere in between or some like Americana rock and roll kind of hybrid. Yeah. So throughout your music career, when did you kind of have one of those aha moments when you played or toured with a musician, had a completely out of body experience just like last month thinking, wow, I'm playing with Paul McCartney at the Hall of Fame show. Yeah, the, you know, we've been really lucky in Foo Fighters. There's been so many of those, whether it's playing with Paul McCartney or, you know, Mick Jagger was a really, really big one for me personally. And all, all kinds of people over the years, you know, Chris Christopherson, um, the guys from Queen, all the idea, Brian Johnson. Yeah, like all that stuff. But and it's so it's hard to like, you know, it's like you almost like forget more of them <laughs> than, than you can remember because we've been we've been really lucky to to have a lot of those moments. And it seems like more and more, you know, as we become this like, you know, the last rock band or whatever, you get more and more of those moments. My favorite touring experiences ever are like some of the first times I toured places, like the first time I ever toured Europe was me and Marco. It was when I was in No Use for a Name and me and Marco, Marco was playing in a band called Swing and Utters at the time. And our two bands shared a bus. It was like the first time I was ever going to all these places in, in Europe. We were over there for like seven weeks and we were just these like roving pirates yeah. that would just, you know, play these crazy shows every single night and then drive to the next town. And, and we'd all wake up and run around and go see whatever the town square and the, and the local museum and the local cathedral and go eat food and wherever you're supposed to eat food and eat the, you know, the schnitzel in that town or whatever and drink their beer and like, just go play crazy punk show and just repeat over and over and over and over again for seven weeks, you know, unforgettable. Yeah. The first time. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because both of our, you know, futures included bands that would tour over there millions of times. But it's like you never forget the first time. That was both of our first time in Europe. Everything's new. And then the, the novelty of like, here we are, like 10 years after we played our first show ever all the way in Europe together doing this. Like there's just a thrill to that. But, you know, coming from a small town like Santa Barbara, you do feel your friends become kind of family, you know. So it, it's more than just like, oh, some guy was in a band with her, you know. It really is like, it's it's such a it's such a cool feeling, you know. I remember we were in another. I was in a band with some other dudes from Santa Barbara. We did called the Playing Favorites, and we were in Japan at the same time. The Foo's were in Japan. You opened for the show like with your acoustics right. or your solo thing, and then played 
played a popsicle song with yeah. us. I mean, just that kind of, you can take Santa Barbara yeah, and play yeah, all yeah. over the world. It's so it's such a thrill. Or like, you know, like like some of the best Jackson United touring that we did was that tour where we were opening for you guys, you know, like around around the oh, US. Right. Oh, that was so fun. So fun, yeah. But I mean, I have to say, like, I mean, Chris would never say this about himself, but it speaks to this guy's character and like humility that like he's in one of the biggest bands in the world, if not the biggest rock band in our, of our generation. And like whenever he's whenever the Foo Fighters aren't busy, he's in a van driving himself with a lean and mean, you know, maybe one crew member at the most <laughs> playing solo shows or doing like the band he was talking about before that they got to tour with uh, Sugar Cult jackson united and it's just like you know people are like dude this guy's like flying on a private jet you know to jam with mick jagger one day and then he's in a you know then he's loading his combo amp in the back of a truck in the snow and like playing shows in front of 50 people the next day like and you you have some funny experiences with that too because like you know like food fighters are like we're so lucky we have this super hardcore fan base you know and yeah. sort of within that there's the really hardcore fan base that comes, you know, you see them in the front row at your shows all the time. You're like, what the, I just saw them like 8,000 miles away. What are they doing here? You know, that kind of thing. And that, and those folks come out to like, you know, anytime any of us do like a, a solo gig or gig with another band, you always see those folks. So over the years, like, you know, we've all gotten to know a lot of the, a lot of those people. And it always cracks me up because when I go out and just do my own little solo tours, like Marco was talking about, we do it pretty like rough and ready. And I always see them like, why are you setting up your own gear? Like, are you okay? Like, what's wrong? Like, why are you doing that? Like, you're loading your Isn't own amp, like, and plugging your shit. Like, you know, what is it? What? That's so funny. That's like going back to your garage days. You know, you got to load everything uh, in. You got to take everything out, break yeah. down on your own. That's. I tell you what, well, after I get back from a Chris Shiflet solo tour and I'm back in, like, in a Foo Fighter land, I'm always like, oh, God, this is so great. Yeah. You're like, I'm so going to need this great. over there. I'm going to need the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look at this rider backstage. It's amazing. Uh, I'm going to have, what am I going to have? I don't even know. I'm going to have it all. It, you know, you probably, you know, keep yourself grounded that way to some, you know. Sure. Between that and uh, being married and raising children, I think that's like the secret <laughs> recipe, you know. And, the, and it is like, you know, Marco knows, like music's an obsession. Like I just... I always view it like if you're lucky enough that you get to do this for a living, you get to do it full time. I just want to do it more and more and more. You know, I just even when we're I'm not really doing anything like I just sat here. This is my little studio, not too far from where my kids go to school. And I just sat in here all day yesterday playing guitar and just watching YouTube stuff and learning other people's little shred licks. And, why. you know, it's just fun. I don't know. I like it. And is that how you really keep in touch with the music and never really got lost in the performance and the glamour and the music industry. I, I mean, I, I think that I was just lucky. It's like a perfect you know, series of, of events. Like when we were kids, we wanted to be Motley Crue, right? But by the time we came of age and we moved to LA and we did all that, like that was over. It was all over. And like the alt rock thing and the punk rock thing, that was all like kind of happening. And that was a very different mindset. And it was a sort of a reaction to the thing that we had grown up listening to and see and you sort of learn this like almost like an over-the-top false humility about it all you know where oh you can't enjoy it and you can't be a you know, you're being a rock star blah, all that stuff i mean you know but there was like a like a, an upside to that too you know like taking a certain pride and like you gotta load your own gear and you gotta do all that stuff um and then i and then it's like i didn't get into the food fighters till i was like 28 so i wasn't a kid you know i was already like pretty much a full grown you know adult 
with some with some life under my belt you know so it wasn't and then even when i joined the food fighters it wasn't like we started like getting into like the territory that we are now for a long time you know five ten years or something till till like you could have been making some really bad you know life choices and like i'm gonna get a lamborghini and do an eight ball and drive off a cliff or what like you know if if those opportunities had been presented to me when i was 17 or 18 or 19 years old i probably would have you know not been turned out to be live the life that i live now you know what i mean but so it's kind of like i don't know (laughs) i feel almost like lucky in a sense that that level of brock success or whatever didn't happen for me for you know till way later the timing was right yeah yeah so you're a podcaster yourself chris and you have a show called walking the floor (laughs) and i mean you've spoken to some of the greatest rock musicians of all time robbie robertson from the band dwight yoakam lucinda williams steve earl and even new greats like late street dive imelda may who of the people yeah. that you've interviewed were you the most nervous to speak to? Maybe because of how much their music meant to you. I mean, without question, Merle Haggard was the scariest because he had a rep of being really hard on interviewers, you know? Um, rest his soul, by the way. Rest, rest his soul. And he's <laughs> Merle Haggard, you know? So he's like, yeah. he's carried, there's some some heft to that. And you also don't know, going into it, like I've, I've, the whole reason I started doing a podcast was to document some of the older cats, you know, I mean, Merle Haggard's obviously well-documented, but I, but I interviewed a lot of other folks that weren't. And so I learned over the years that a lot of times when you're interviewing somebody that's had like a 30 or 40, 50 year career, and they have this massive body of work, a lot of times those folks, they don't, they're not that nostalgic about what they did in 1962. They don't really want to talk about it. They don't really care to remember, you know, it wasn't, they don't view it the way you do. It's not through this glorified lens, you know what I mean? And so you never know going into those if, if they're going to be open open to like talking about the good old days. And, and luckily Merle was, man, he talked about everything. He was like, it was so cool to get to talk to him about, about making records, you know, back in the sixties and all that, all just all that stuff. Cause I kind of view all these interviews, like, especially when it's somebody that I grew up listening to, or have spent a lot of time listening to where you just have all these nerdy super fan questions. And if, if they're willing to entertain them, that just makes it really, really fun. Dwight Yoakam was another one that I was, that I was nervous uh uh about i mean there's been a lot of them tommy lee it's like i, I grew up listening to i tommy loved your one lee, with man. tommy lee i loved your one with mike ness too that was cool. oh mike ne- oh mike ness yeah maybe mike ness D. maybe mike ness the most maybe <laughs> mike ness the most because you know mike ness has like a a vibe of like he's a kind of a badass you know and, and we're just huge fans and 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 then I, when i interviewed him turns out just the nicest guy in the world you know and again willing to talk about whatever you wanted to talk about and so that makes it fun Well, what an honor it has been for me to speak to you both, truly. Please look out for Marco's piece published in this Thursday's issue of the Santa Barbara Independent. Chris Shiflett, once again, congrats on being inducted into the Hall of Fame. What an amazing experience that must have been. And thank you for sharing all of your stories about the Santa Barbara punk rock and garage scene from the 80s and 90s. I mean, I'm sure people listening to this podcast who have been in Santa Barbara for decades will certainly reminisce about that time. And for newcomers to the DIY and garage scene, I hope that this inspires them to go out and play music. So thank you so much to both of you for coming on the show this week. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Bye, guys. Bye.